Hello, thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Lore Untold. My name is Lexi, she, her. I'm Talison, they, them. Today, we are going to be getting into investigating rituals as a form of folklore. More specifically, we're talking about dice rituals. Yay! Yay! <laughs> So before we really get into like a discussion about dice rituals and what is happening with that and what I mean by dice rituals or luck rituals, all that stuff, I want to go back to the basics a little bit and do a nice little refresher on our previously determined definitions of mythology and folklore. One, to see if we think that anything has changed since we last made those definitions. Cool, cool, very cool. I mean, the reason I want to do that is to talk a little bit about why ritual and ritualistic activities are categorized as a form of folklore and mythology. Nice. Just because this is sort of the first time we're engaging in a discussion with something that isn't story-based. Mm-hmm. I say story-based very broadly. You know, it's like a, it's an action. It's an action. Yeah, it's not stories or oral history or anything like that. Yeah. So our definitions from episode one that we previously determined are as follows. We categorized myth and defined it as most often a narrative or a tale that is accompanied by beliefs and rituals of a particular religion. We said that it exists in both the telling and the doing, but that it must be included within or accompanied by religious practice or belief. And we noted that even though like we use the word religion, that can categorize spirituality belief. It doesn't have to be a structured religion setting. I'd say that still holds true for me at least. Yeah, I don't think I've changed in my definition of mythology yet. I feel like I'm still happy with that one. And we might be happy with both these definitions still, but I think it's good to sort of revisit them a number of times. Yeah, you check in. Yeah, because they can change. They can alter. They're not firm definitions. No, they're very fluid. Very fluid. So we defined folklore very similarly to mythology. And in many cases, we said that there was significant overlap, but folklore has more variety than myth. We used the American Folklore Society's definition for folklore as things learned through oral tradition and action. And that was broken down by them to include belief, doing, knowing, making, and saying. And then within those five branches included things like mythology, religious customs, crafts, building infrastructure, dance, music, etc. Yeah, like we said in the first episode, it's a square, rectangle kind of situation where mythology is folklore, but not all folklore is mythology. Yeah, I feel like I still feel good about that definition as well. Yeah, same. Yeah. So as far as rituals being categorized within this folklore mythology sort of grouping, one, there's like scholarly thought and scholarly perspective on this stuff. Lots of differing opinions. And it seems like folklorists kind of have this beef going on where they're fighting between like, ritual is myth, myth is not ritual, myth came from ritual, ritual came from myth. They've got opinions and it seems heated. I'm not going to (laughs) lie. Honestly, sometimes a little discourse is is nice to listen to. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I found some more in article form, but it was very much, this is a scholarly article. I'm writing it professionally. This has been peer reviewed, so I can't diss my peers that much, but I'm going to (laughs) try. Very quiet subtweeting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which happens more than yeah. you think in these kind of things. Oh, if you yeah, have yeah. never read academic papers, it happens a lot more than you think. They're petty. Academics some are petty people and I will, love it. Some people will just straight up name people. Some people who have like tenure and things like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which which yeah. can be really interesting to see happen. Most people try to keep it a little more subtle and civil. Admittedly, the, the articles that I read were not subtle. <laughs> 
by name, first and last, <laughs> quoting of their other literature. Full government name. It was, it was a fun time. <laughs> it was a fun time. So some of this discussion, what this means is that in general, folklorists agree that ritual is related to folklore, but they don't always agree that ritual is related to mythology. Okay. Which I, from what I know growing up and what I learned about growing up, I'm going to say we're going to give beginning opinions and ending opinions, okay? I love it. Yeah. I disagree. So do I. There's so many things that you learn about with mythology, and we're not talking like sacrifice of animals or humans or whatever, but there's just so many things that are woven into mythology that are repetitive. Mm -hmm. And like, that's kind of how I think about rituals is it's a conscious repetitive act. Yeah. And I think it's a conscious repetitive act with the intent of achieving Mm -hmm. some sort of believed focus or deed or gift or like there is some outcome that you believe will happen when you do the ritual. Yeah. Debatable how much you believe that, but I feel like rituals are a thing you do with intent for something else to happen. And that that other thing that's going to happen is rooted in belief. Yeah, I agree. Would you like to hear some of the the things that the folklorists are arguing about? Yes, please. (laughs) Some scholars propose that mythology in most ancient religions took the place of dogma. Dogma is doctrine that might come from a particular... So if we think about like the catechism in the Catholic Church, that's going to count as dogma. Okay. It's rules, it's principles laid down by leadership of a particular religious practice. And some scholars theorize that mythology and ancient religions took the place of that dogma. I don't agree with that. I don't either. I think they can exist side by side. Yeah, and I don't agree with that because we do have record of ancient religions that have written down rules for their faith. Yeah. So I don't agree with that. But some people theorize that, like, that's the purpose mythology took. And I think that in some parts it does. Like, we talk about mythology that's intended to teach us lessons, to teach us information, to act more in the, like, parable sense of the word. And I think that mythology and those mythological tales, if I'm talking in sort of the narrative sense about mythology, like, I think they did serve that purpose, but I don't think they replaced doctrine. No, I don't think so either. But an interesting theory, and they had stuff to back it up, and it's a theory. The theory's not wrong. I just... It's not one I subscribe to. Yeah, it feels like another area where both ideas can coexist. The ideas of the historians and folklorists, you know, like both ideas can coexist because, yeah, maybe in some parts of the world it Mm -hmm. did replace it, but in other parts of the world it absolutely did not replace it. Yeah, and it's hard. This type of discussion is so, I mean, like it is relatively theoretical because we won't have answers to this stuff because of the access we have to concrete material from these time periods. So I don't know. Some additional theories between myth and ritual. Some scholars theorize that the relationship between myth and ritual is that myths came out of rituals as a way to explain why that ritual had been forgotten or what it once served to accomplish. This feels like a chicken egg situation. Yeah, except for the fact that we have rituals that come from after myths. Yeah. Like we have myths that are about a thing. And then after the fact, we have a ritual that like is in use after that myth, but they're still related. Again, another instance of why is that the hill you're dying on? Yeah. Because I don't agree. (laughs) And there's sort of proof about it. So there's a lot of proof about it. Yeah. And then also like myths form separately from rituals. We have myths that are not related to ritual. We have myths that sort of exist on their own. And this definition of myths that I'm talking about here are specifically like narrative tales. Mm-hmm. Obviously, our definition is a little bit broader to encompass more material, but the ones that I'm talking about specifically within, like, what sorts of things are scholars discussing? Most of the time they're talking about narrative oral stories. 
Yeah. But yeah, myths exist not coming from ritual or not being related to ritual at all. Yeah. There's so many. I know. There's so many that come from just like explaining the world around you. Yeah. There's so many that are just like weird things that are just like around and a thing we do that is ritualistic, but we're not related to learning a lesson. We're just doing it. Yep. This is what we've always done. Yeah. And so those are some of the discussions. There's a lot more. I define ritual as a consistent action with the intent purpose of achieving some sort of believed outcome. Yeah. And I think it's consistent. I think it happens over time. And in a lot of instances, I think it also happens in number. So like multiple people are doing those rituals. It sort of spreads. Yeah. Yeah. It grows its own life through the community that it is performed in. I agree. Some common examples of rituals, and I think we should try and think of some more and see if you can come up with any based on these ones I have. Crossing your fingers mm-hmm. or holding your breath over a bridge or lifting your feet over state lines. Knocking on wood. Skipping cracks in the sidewalk. Yeah. Those ones we do, that, <laughs> like not all of those are rooted in a mythological narrative tale. No. But there's still a thing we do that is ritual with the intent of some sort of hopeful outcome. Yeah. Or harmful. Or harmful. I also said that Groundhog's Day... I'm going to call a ritual. Yes, I love this. Yep. Groundhog's Day was yesterday for the recording times. Two days ago. Oh, shit. What is time? So when I'm saying things like dice rituals, what I mean by that, if you're sort of confused as to what I'm mentioning, is in tabletop games, a lot of them use dice within the main mechanics as a form of probability to decide whether or not actions that you're taking as a player character are going to be successful. Or like actions taken as a anything are going to be successful. Like game masters roll dice too. Yeah, and also in casinos, you know, you also have people who have very strict rituals they do before they roll in a craps table or something. Yeah, that could be anything from like rolling out the bad numbers or blowing on them or... I mean, there's a lot of different ones that exist that are used quite frequently, which I am going to talk about. But before I do that, I wanted to just sort of for fun, I guess, and this isn't so much related to dice rituals, but I wanted to, I don't know, look at some historic dice games. And I don't have mention of like what people may have done to ensure what rituals they may have done to ensure their luck for these games. Mm-hmm. But just the rules of the games themselves, which I find kind of fun, especially because a lot of them are really reminiscent of the dice that we're using now. And I think that's yeah. kind of cool. I mean, there's only so many sides you can make a dice, but I think it's still kind of cool that yep. we're still using some <laughs> of the same stuff that has been used for thousands of years. Yeah. In popularity of the games I talk about, obviously we're going to be talking about like a number of ancient communities. And mm-hmm. I want to sort of challenge the concept that these would have only been played by a certain type of people in these cultures. Mm -hmm. The games we're talking about now, we believe to have been played like chess. Okay. Where like lots and lots and lots of people are aware of it in lots of different cultures. It's very popularly Mm -hmm. played. Most people know some of the rules and people from any sort of societal bracket is going to be aware of it and in often cases understand the rules. It's not something that's just played by nobility. It's not something that's just played by commoners, if we're using that word. It's something that was used and played super widely. And the reason that we think that is because of what we have left Mm -hmm. item-wise. Like, we have board games and old historic dice that still exist from thousands of years ago. And for us to still be able to find them tells us a lot about how many people were actively playing them. There's like lots of games that existed that there's no way we'll know about them whatsoever because they weren't played in this capacity. Yeah, for people who aren't as familiar with anthropology and like that kind of stuff, the things that we see a lot of are the things that were most common or most preserved. The more people had them, 
the more they were valued to be taken care of, and then the more we can find currently as we're going through historical sites. And that could mean like two things that yeah. we still have now. Yeah. And that's great because that's two things. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean there were only two that existed in the historical times or even like five that existed in there histor- probably historical times. Thousands. That probably meant thousands. And, yeah. and of the number that were cared for and kept precious by people and survived to now, we have two. Yeah. It's wild. It's wild when you think about it. It's very cool. I like when we it. have a lot of something like pots or vases or plates, you know, these items that you have a ton mm-hmm. of that you're going to have a ton of, obviously we're going to find more of because more people use coins. coins. God, there's so many coins. Yeah, it's really cool. It's very cool. Archaeology is sick. Archaeology and anthropology. Both of them. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to like have us challenge that conception that these are old historic games only played by the rich because they're not. So no. the first one is called the Royal Game of Ur. Okay. The Royal Game of U-R. Where's this coming from? This is a racing game. Like, it's a board game, but it's a racing game on the board. And it dates to about 2500 BCE. It comes from the Mesopotamia area, and it has Sumerian writing on the board. There's Sumerian characters written on on the boards that we, some of the boards that we have. Do you feel like, So I'm so sorry, I just cut you in train of thought. I'm so sorry. Do you feel like you were prepared in childhood to interact with a disproportionate amount of Sumerian items? Because I do. Um, no. I think in college I got dunked head first into like figure out how archaeology works, <laughs> even though I don't have a degree in archaeology, but to understand the research you're doing, you have to understand archaeology and like archaeological practices. So that's what I think happened. To I me. feel like I was sold that I was going to interact with a lot more Sumerian objects than I have at this point in my life. Oh, I understand <laughs> what you're saying. I have interacted with a lot of a lot of like these ancient materials because of the research I did yeah. at the area of the world I was in. I feel like I'm everyone more was like, with this I feel stuff. like everyone's like, you gotta learn the ancient dead languages because you're gonna have so many Sumerian tablets you're gonna interact with. And now I have not seen a single one. That's a lie. I've I have not seen a single one in person. I've seen them obviously. In I haven't seen a single one in person. <laughs> I have actively done research on them more than once. So like I, I like encounter them pretty frequently. But that's sort of where the board is from. One of the things about having old artifacts and old board games is that we may find the board, we may find the pieces, but we may not necessarily know what it Mm -hmm. is or how to play it or what the rules are. You know how many people throw out those instruction pamphlets as soon as they get a board game? Yeah, the instruction (laughs) pamphlet gets tossed out the window. There's no way that's sticking around. And that is true of a lot of this stuff. And we don't know... We don't know if that's because the rules were ever written down mm-hmm. or if that's because the rules were written down, but it was like so widely known that people didn't have it. Like when you see, again, I'm going to compare it to chess. When you see a chess board sitting around, they don't all have instruction rules with them. You're just like, it's a chess board. And we all sort of like generally understand, not all, a lot of people generally understand what's going on. There. Or when you think about like slaps, like hard game slaps. Yeah. You, know, you remember that one? No. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> It was very popular in my elementary school, where you're just, like, over the course of elementary school, thrown into this double solitaire type game. I mean, cards are even a great example, generally. Cards are a thing that we have that we play hundreds, like, an infinite amount of games with a deck Mm -hmm. of cards. And they're not coming with instructions for every game that is played with that material. You're lucky if they even come with one. (laughs) Some of these things we find, and we're not even sure if they're, like, children's toys, if they're board games. It takes a bit for us to actually be able to find that information out and in many cases we may never know it and they're in a museum somewhere or a repository somewhere Mm -hmm. in a personal collection and they just are there and we know maybe roughly where it's when and where it's from but we don't know what it is that's common yeah you often see just like 
dice, comma, year. Yeah. The really cool thing about this game, though, is that there is a curator at the British Museum. I have feelings about the British Museum. They're not good feelings, but I am not getting into yeah, it same. today. No, that's, a, that's an entire podcast on its own. That is not us. <laughs> no, no, no. I spent far too long this week reading British law about museum policy. Get into it if you want, but I'm not going into it. It's a lot to explain. That's it. I'm talking <laughs> about the museum because they own things, and that's unfortunate. So they have one of these boards with dice and pieces, roughly from this time period, from this area of the world. And they also have a pretty big cuneiform tablet collection. Now, cuneiform tablets, if you're not familiar, are clay tablets that were used as like early forms of written word. And they would have been written with, I guess, like a stick is the easiest way to describe it. You would have taken your, your stick, your stylus, and punched into the clay your text. Like the text is a whole complicated thing. But we have those and we have the ability to translate that language. That is just like skills that we have. And there is a curator in the British Museum who found one of these cuneiform tablets and started translating it. I say found, they just like, it was in the collection and it hadn't been translated yet. Mm. And they translated it, realized it was rules for a game, and then went through record of historic games they could find to figure out what game this is talking about. That's so fun. Yeah. That's so fun. And they figured out that it was like based on the descriptions in the cuneiform tablet i think it said something about how many tile squares there were on the board mm. and so then it was compared to like okay how many tile boards do we have for historic games that have 20 tiles yeah that's cool which one of these do the rules that are written like make sense for the game so the way the game works is that you have this board that is sort of eye shaped i'm gonna send you a photo of it but i will describe it for our audio medium <laughs> hey we're gonna get really good at descriptive text and stuff. So honestly, so far, it's not been horrible. So we have this roughly eye-shaped board, and we have 20 squares that make up the board. And there's like three main components of it. If we're talking horizontally, we have like a two by six square, yep. a one by two square in the middle, and then a four by three square that are sort of like making the board. So we have a two by three, a one by two, and a four by three that are sort of like making a general eye shape. So some of the boards have symbols that mean things. We can see on the board there's a, a number of different repeating shapes that are occurring. Mm -hmm. And it's not that the shapes are informative, but it's that there are like specific locations on the okay, board that, makes sense. that do certain things. And I think to describe what the squares do, I probably should just like get into the rules. So in addition to this eye-shaped board, what you have is that each player has seven pieces they're flat, they're circular, they have a five dot grid on them. I don't know if each of the pieces is numbered, unclear. But we have those. And then there are four D4s. There are four four-sided dice. Okay, okay. The dice are not numbered like we would think of normal four-sided dice today. But instead, one of the top corners on each of the dice has a white dot on it. Okay. And it's rolling to see how many white dots you get. So like if you roll and none of the white dots are up, then that's no movement. Okay. And if you roll and all of the white are up, then that's four. It's a two-person game. So it's, it's like me and one other person. And the purpose of the game is to get all of your pieces onto the board, across the board, and off the board before your opponent. Okay. Yeah. Little race. Race to the end. Yeah. You roll the four dice, and then that's how many places you can move your pieces. So basically what we're doing is you start on the floral-shaped pieces on the small section of the eye-shaped side. You move to the left. Okay. Then you both move into the center. And then you share that middle pane all the way to the other side. 
and then they separate again, and then they go back to the left until they exit the board. If the other opponent lands on your piece in the middle, then it kicks your piece off the board and you have to get that piece back on the board by rolling again. If I was to like roll a two and then I'd move like one piece, like one onto the board and then one okay. over, and then I rolled a two again, I could add another piece to the board or move my okay. current piece. Okay, so cool. there's a, a point in the game where like all of your pieces could be on the board at the same time. Chaos. Yeah, chaos. there's like a little bit of Can strategy. Can you share spaces? No. Okay, so you can also get kicked off if you if you share space. Yeah, because that center strip of boxes, that part is shared by both players. And so that's why it's a race is that depending on how you do it, depending on what you choose to do, it's a little bit of strategy, it's a little bit of luck. And so if your piece lands on a piece that someone else's is, it kicks theirs off the board and they have to start over with that piece to try and get it on and around yeah. the board and off. This would be so fun to play with people. Yeah. One of the boxes in the middle that does a special thing is there's like a safe square. And there's another square that lets you roll twice. And so if you land on those, then you get these extra benefits mm -hmm. that are existing on the board. Most of the squares, only one person can be on at a Interesting. time. So it's equal parts strategy, equal parts luck in a pretty fun way. I could absolutely see this getting really competitive in a bar. Yeah, You know, right? like it would be so fun. <laughs> a good New Year's Eve game. Yeah. I think even now, I think it sounds fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think this would be really fun to play with friends that maybe get a little too competitive with Jenga. Yeah. You, know? you want like those kind of friends who are like, oh, no, I'm going to knock you off this thing. <laughs> a lot of it is luck, like how successful you are is a little bit of luck. But there's a decent amount of where you're moving your pieces when the strategy stuff that's happening that I think is really fun. There were two different types of dice used for this game. So there's the more traditional D4s. And then there were also more stick-like dice that also had that same four-sided where on one side there'd be a mark and depending on how the sticks got tossed, that would tell you. And we think that the game lasted in popularity for about 3,000 years, which is super fun. It was around for a long time and it's around again, which is great. We're still playing it now, which I think is super cool. I think we need to play more of this game. Yeah. I think we should start playing this with all of our friends. It's simple rules too, like it's pretty simple. Pretty simple. And this board in particular, the one that we're looking at right now, that's from the British Museum, was found in Iraq in the 1920s. And so that's just like the area of the world that this one in particular came from. But it's very likely it's very, other boards are going to look different. Yeah. I think it's cool. It's fun. So that's the Royal Game of Ur, of, of your super cool, super fun. It's a beautiful board. It is a very beautiful board. It's ivory and it looks like lapis lazuli and... It, yeah, that's, it has lapis lazuli in it. That's one of our materials listed. And shell. Shell. Oh, yeah. And very likely different qualities of versions of this board exist. This one is very elaborate, very decorative, probably would have been something that was saved and preserved more. But there were likely others that were made out of clay that you could probably even draw the space, draw that on something using like chalk, charcoal or a material that, or like chalk, a material that's going to transfer mm -hmm. well. Because the game is not so complex that you couldn't play it with no materials. So. Yeah. And I'm sure like also there are probably places that many of these games have house rules. Yeah, probably that we just don't know about. You know, so you probably have people who like we're playing with these people. So when we play with these people and you like make a couple marks and it's like different rules that that end up happening yeah because the only reason we know the rules is from one cuneiform tablet and frankly it's possible that that was not how the rules worked <laughs> right like <laughs> that could be like one person those might have been the home rules they might those might be home rules we don't know we don't know which i think is super fun so another game it's sort of similar to this one but it it's not quite dice but it is a similar luck based game they were using the throwing of sticks like the other dice option that was used for this game. It's called Senate. Okay, I think I've heard of this one. I don't remember the rules. I have found 
a number of different versions of rules for this game. So it seems sort of like Ooh, maybe we've made guesses about what's happening with this board. Oh, uh, okay. We do have art, though, from the time period of figures and characters playing this game, which I think is super fun because that's one thing that's going to sort of inform us about mm -hmm. how sort of culturally appropriate a piece of media was. This is also a two-person game. The board is comprised of 30 squares in three rows of 10. Versions we have of the game, we have some that were found in archaeological digs in Egypt. There was one version of this game found in Tutankhamun's tomb. We know that it was played because we have versions of it. And we've reconstructed the rules for this game based on pictures and artifacts, but we don't know about the official rules for this one. So we've sort of like made guesses. It is also a two-player game, and there are theories that it represents the person's journey through life and death and to Osiris. And then again, rather than dice, this game uses marked sticks to determine like, how far the player can advance on the board. So the sticks are marked, and depending on what okay. sort of side of the stick shows. And a lot of times they're depicted as being flat, skinny sticks, so that if you toss them, a side is going to end up that will tell you whether or not you're moving. And I think maybe it's also kind mm -hmm. of like a racing game. I mean, we don't know the rules. We've tried to guess. We can see here that I've got some art shared that has a number of different animals engaging in both human-like activities. And then also there are animals that are engaging in animal yeah. activities here. And on this, we have what looks like a lion and potentially a gazelle or a gazelle-like creature that are sitting on chairs and playing this game. And I love them. And so we can see a number of board pieces. And we've found board pieces from this game that are fairly detailed carvings. And we found some that we think detailed carvings yeah. that are just like pieces that may have been moved. And yeah, we're not entirely sure about the rules so much on this one, but it's, you toss the sticks, you mm -hmm. see if you move, and then you have these little like figures that move across the board and cancel each other out is what we think. But I really liked this art. They're just having a good time. <laughs> yeah, I like it too. I like the dogs. That's like the two dogs that are like shepherding yeah. the antelope mm -hmm. or gazelle. I like it. Another sort of version of dice games that we know that existed. And this one, we don't necessarily have rules for. We know that dice games were played, again, because of additional art. We have pottery pieces that are showing figures playing additional games. This one in particular that I'm sharing right now is a Greek pottery piece found in Athens, estimated to be from about 530 BCE. We can see on this image, we have sort of two figures, Ajax and Achilles, who are seated in front of a board that has what we believe are dice. There are seven dice visible on this board. They're so teeny tiny. I know, but like from a base, can't determine what game they're playing. No. Don't know. <laughs> People theorize that this might've been an ancient form of backgammon. Dates back 5,000 years to Mesopotamia. We also see Bakuman being played in the 5th century in the Byzantine Empire and in the 6th century in Persia. It's everywhere. That game is very popular and we're still playing that game now, which is super oh, fun. Yeah. There's lots of variations on what that game may have been. And we don't, well, there's only so many ways to tell what those variations were. But we know that dice games were being played in the world during this area of time, which is fun. And then the last game is a game that originated, I believe in China, and then from there traveled to Japan and Korea. So it's called Sagaroku in Japanese, and there are Chinese and Korean versions of that word as well. And this actually describes two different types of games, same name, two different types of games. Okay. The original dice game that was brought over to Japan from China in Japanese is called Bon Sugoroku. And it came in the eighth century, which was originally, again, a dice game between two people 
and there were 15 counters and it looks sort of like versions we have of the board look like backgammon and look like versions of the game go in english okay but that's an early predecessor to backgammon we think and it is played very differently but the boards look similar we have some sort of material boards some material pieces and like some idea of how the rules were played but also again we're not fully positive on that and then there's this later period of totally different version of the game that does not involve dice, to my knowledge. Mm-hmm. It has some dice, actually. The game has some dice. There's dice in this game, too. And it's called <laughs> Isogoroku, and it was produced in the Edo period, which is from, like, 1650 to 1868, so, like, a much later period in time. But I thought it was interesting to mention both just because they sort of sometimes are called the same name. Sometimes people will just call them, like, the latter half of, of that word, so they'll just call them Isogoroku. So the later version is picture-heavy, And it's comparative to chutes and ladders, where you have a board that you are sort of moving up throughout the board. Okay. It's based on hierarchical caste systems, but you're moving sort of up the board from Mm -hmm. what is deigned to be the... That starts with the most caste-oppressed individual and then up to those in the highest amounts of power. We could get into a full discussion of problematic issues with that, but that game is still being played today. It's still a common version. And I have collections that is going to show both the art of people playing these games, art of people engaging in these games, which also tells us a little bit about how pervasive they were within cultures, which I think is just super fascinating. Those are some sort of older versions of dice games. And I just think it's so cool that we're still incorporating some of the same like these games we talked mm-hmm. about look familiar to games we still play yeah. now yeah, we just call cool. them different names and i think that's super cool that we're still doing the same stuff i'm not shocked by that but i just think it's cool For to sure. acknowledge sometimes thanks for tuning into this episode of lore untold catch us in two weeks as we release the second half of this episode where we cover in detail our most recent survey filled out by our listeners and many folks on the internet talking about what rituals people are specifically using within their tabletop gaming communities if you'd like to hear more about the podcast you can find us at lore untold on instagram twitter and tiktok you can visit our website at loreuntold.com or email us at lore at gmail.com if you want to tell us about any of your specific dice or luck rituals we would love to hear about it i can be found online at lochness lex on twitter and tiktok and talison can be found online on also twitter and tiktok under a never bird we hope you enjoyed the episode thanks so much for tuning in see you next time bye